Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and today I am joined by Mark Sloan. How are you doing today, brother? Doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I'm really excited to talk to you finally. I have read two of your books so far at this point, and I am into talking with people. I love to interview people that are obsessed with something. I find the obsessed more interesting than generalists or uh, opportunists. And so I'm talking with Mark Sloan. He is a man on a mission and he's an author of several books, notably The Cancer Industry, Cancer, The Metabolic Disease Unraveled, and Red Light, Therap- Red Light Therapy, Miracle Medicine. And I've got something kind of troubling for people to consider in regards to cancer, which is that the American Cancer Society estimates that almost half of everybody alive today will develop cancer at some point in their lives, half of us. And the World Health Organization predicts a 50% rise in cancer diagnosis by the year 2020. Oh no, that's this year. We are, uh, we're in 2020. We are living in the future and it kind of sucks. Instead of getting the uh, hoverboards that we were all hoping for, instead we just all apparently have a 50% chance of getting cancer. And so in this podcast, I'll make the case that evil causes cancer. And this is something that I picked up from Mark's book. It's kind of the conclusion that I reached from your book. Uh, He has this book, uh, The Cancer Industry, that I would urge that really everybody read, and I I don't recommend that everybody read every single book that I review, but this book is a dissection of one of the darker truths about modernity, which is that evil is at the root of the cancer epidemic, which threatens your life and your loved ones. And I understand that might sound really kind of pessimistic and sound like conspiratorial thinking, but I think it's the same conclusion that anyone should reach when they learn the facts about cancer, when they learn about the egregious profiteering of the cancer industry, along with when they understand the specter of bad science that wastes billions of taxpayer dollars while millions of souls suffer. So this podcast, though, is not all going to be like depressing, hope-crushing black pills. In fact, I think we have some pretty good news to share here, and we've got some practical evidence-based advice that should empower anyone who is worried about cancer. And the pharmaceutical, hospital, industrial complex would prefer that every one of us live in constant anxiety with the sword of Damocles of a cancer diagnosis ever dangling over our heads. And I think that learning the truth about cancer, as as angry as it might make us, 
is going to assuage a, a lot of existential angst that people have about this. And as a, as a really important call to action, I'll urge everyone listening to this to share this podcast with someone you know who cancer has touched. Because we, we, we all seem to know somebody that's dealt with cancer. Because what we'll share here, I think, can uh, save their life, really, and make a, a significant impact on their, their well-being and them uh, being able to uh, survive what's really a, a pretty catastrophic epidemic. I've recently done uh, a couple of pieces of content on this coronavirus, which is kind of the, the world epidemic that seems to be seems to be maybe looming over over a lot of people over that seems to be looming over us all now and really uh, cancer is the global epidemic that i think we should really be kind of concerned about so i wanted to talk with mark and uh i want to hear your story with cancer because you have a a pretty heartbreaking uh experience that you had with it yeah, so when I was 12 years old, I lost my mother to cancer, or at least that's what I was told at the time. Um, she was diagnosed when I was 11, and she basically, she had a small precancerous lesion on her cervix, so it was, it was called cervical cancer, and it was only about the size of a baby fingernail. Very, very tiny, and the doctors said, you know, if we get her in quickly for treatment, the quicker you treat, the more the better chance you have for survival. That's kind of the industry's mantra. And so that actually left me pretty hopeful. At the time, at 11 years old, I didn't know much about cancer. I just knew it wasn't a good thing. However, my dad assured us, you know, we had some of the best doctors working on it in all of Canada and that she will be well by the end of it. So the doctors went in, they cut off this polyp or precancerous lesion, and they said they want to hit the area with some radiotherapy just to make sure it doesn't come back. And that actually at the time, you know, it was pretty assuring as well. And after that, six months later, when she went in for a checkup, there were some cutbacks at the hospital at the time. So she wasn't able to get back in for another six months. Um, and when she did, the doctors said that they found that the cancer had metastasized to her hip area. And interestingly, I could show you some studies right now that show radiotherapy causes uh, cancer cells to migrate and metastasize to distal organs and tissues, just like what happened. So not surprisingly, that's what happened. And the crazy thing about that is not that it metastasized due to radiotherapy, but that the doctor wanted to now inject her with chemotherapy. Um, so once that happened, it was almost like she got hit by a truck. Like her state of health was just a rapid and severe decline. So it's like the doctors tell you she's going to get well if we do this, especially if we do it quickly. But in reality, the, the quick treatment only resulted in quick torture and quick death for my mother because she died a couple months later. And those months were really difficult to watch. They left me and my family in a state of post-traumatic stress. And it right to the bitter end that chemotherapy seemed to do her in. So it wasn't until years later that I kind of came to my senses and I questioned whether or not, I guess my question was, what many people try to avoid because it's a painful one if the answer is a certain answer. And that is, did my mother die of cancer or was she murdered for profit by an industry that cares more about making money than saving lives? So I got to work. Uh, this was about four years ago. 
and I committed to writing a book on cancer. I didn't know what I was, what I was going to find. I'm not a doctor. However, if you ask me, that doesn't matter because the evidence is what is important. The empirical and scientific evidence of what has been observed and repeatedly observed and, and documented in scientific publications. So all my books, especially my two on cancer, stick strictly with scientific evidence. So I don't present anything that hasn't been derived from scientific studies. And in writing this book, I read, I estimate at least 10,000 studies, the abstracts at the very least, many of them, the full studies. And in total, between the two books, there are about 2,500 scientific studies referenced. So ultimately, my conclusion was that indeed, my mom didn't die of cancer. It was the treatments that killed her. And to put it in the words of Dr. Glenn Warner, we have an industry that's murdering people left and right just for the sake of profit. Yeah, it's, it's pretty horrific. I'm really sorry about what, what you went through. That's okay, because it gave me a purpose in life. So I look at it like my greatest gift. My mother gave me a gift. She gave me a story to tell that could inspire others. She gave me an opportunity to solve a problem. And I took that, and now I have a purpose in life. So it's, it's a blessing. My greatest tragedy, you could say, was my greatest gift. And so the best thing I can do in return for her dying so my life could have a purpose is turning her legacy into a victim of cancer, into a hero who inspired her son to save lives and change the world by writing the book that would do just that. And it turned out to be two books. I'll flash these before the screen. One oh, is the cancer great. industry. The other is cancer, the metabolic disease unraveled. I've got lots of notes taken. In case <laughs> I see. To any particular I see. Section. You got a ton of notes in there. And you, I find that a lot of families, if they if they struggle with cancer, if they if they get past it, if they beat it, like my family was so we were we were so fortunate. I find that a lot of people have some cognitive dissonance that kicks in because we we re we really don't want to believe that our doctors might be betraying us because you you meet doctors you deal with doctors and for the most part they all seem like pretty decent people that are interested in in saving lives and there's i think there's also a sense where families and parents of children that have had cancer, they, they really don't want to believe that they might have done the, the wrong thing. They, don't want, they really don't want to believe that they may have, uh, that the decisions that a family made may have contributed to ruining someone's life because of a diagnosis. They, they want to believe instead that a life was saved. And so you, you'll run into cognitive dissonance when you make this case to people that the mainstream approach, I, I think people call it the, what is it, the, the burn slash and hack approach to cancer, that it's uh, totally fallacious, that it's at best bad science, and at worst, it's a, a psychopathic uh, crime uh, that is, you know, that, it, that, is, that, that people are subjected to. I, th I think people have a lot of, th there's a, a lot of skepticism that pops up because people, they don't want to believe that there could be a malicious conspiracy on this scale. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think the same thing's happening for vaccines. The people who will uh, kind of not want to look at the evidence for that, just like with cancer, are the ones who have generally put their kids through that, injected the toxic concoctions of mercury, aluminum, uh, formaldehyde, propylene glycol, which is antifreeze. These are just pure poisons. The idea that that can make someone healthier is as insane as the idea that cutting someone with a knife is going to make them healthier. I mean, when was the last time you cut yourself with a knife and were healthier afterwards? I cut myself with a scimitar one time, actually, and it, it really didn't help. I was uh, doing martial arts as a kid, and I had this, uh, my parents bought me a scimitar because I picked it out in a catalog, and I really, really wanted the scimitar to practice with, and then, yeah, then I cut my leg, and it was, it was not good. <laughs> a scimitar? How do you spell that? I want to look up a photo right now. I've never heard of this. Yeah, scimitar, S-C-I-M-A-T-E-R, I think. That's the, that's the Arabian sword. Oh, if you, yeah, if you, there it is. That's like the Aladdin-style sword. Yep, yep. I sliced my leg nice, right open with that, with that thing. So, okay, we can talk about vaccines a little bit. But first, I wanted you to break down those three common forms of cancer therapy and why they are counterintuitive to what the doctors tell you they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so I guess the first thing I would like to start with is the fact that the, all three forms of cancer surgery, the prevailing public attitude towards them in the past, they never had chemotherapy back in the day uh, until like 1946. But before that, they had a similar one, which was like uh, burning with acid. So these forms of cancer treatment, including surgery, have been the predominant attitude has been hostile and disapproving by the public. And so the 15th century Renaissance physician Paracelsus was quoted as saying, it should be forbidden and severely punished to remove cancer by cautery, burning, and other fiendish tortures. So it's like in the past, I would make the case that they were a lot wiser than us today. They at least had their common sense intact, if not their reason as well. And uh, they saw it as a form of evil, the use of these things. So here we are today, still using them. And it's more like people today see it as it's been normalized. Like they see, okay, if you have a tumor or cancer, yeah, you got to cut that thing out, right? But the evidence suggests something entirely different. And as far as surgery goes, I think that's a good one to start with. The biggest study and the most comprehensive study to date on cancer surgery and its efficacy was done all the way back in 1844 by Dr. Leroy de of Paris, France. And it was published in the French Academy of Sciences. This study included almost 3,000 cancer patients over a 30-year period. Massive, massive study. And they undergone either surgery, caustics, which is the application of a chemical that destroys tissue, the modern form of chemotherapy, or no treatment at all. And Dr. Etoile found that the average survival of patients following surgery was one year and five months, so not very long. And remarkably, two years after cancer diagnosis, those who refused both surgery and caustics had a 50% higher chance of survival. So a lot of people think chemotherapy and radiotherapy in the alternative mind or thinking community, they see those as a negative. But many of those people I find even think surgeries, oh, it's not that bad. Well, the evidence suggests it's every bit as negative as the chemo and radiotherapy, maybe to different degrees, but it certainly does not seem to be something that helps when you look at all the evidence that's out there. 
one of the things that I didn't know that your book informed me about is how a cancer tumor, it, it, it has an environment around it. It has a, I believe it has a, 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 it has a tissue that is around it. And when they cut it out, they are, they're of course, they're, they tend to kind of splash the cancer cells out elsewhere in the body. And so that's why the surgery results in the cancer proliferating further, if I'm understanding correctly. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so cancer metastasis is the primary cause of most cancer deaths. Some have set up that 90% of people die because of metastasis. Metastasis can be defined as tumor cells breaking free from the original tumor and colonizing or migrating to distant organs and tissues and then setting up another tumor. So despite that fact, most people are completely unaware that surgical removal of a tumor has been known for 120 years to be exact, um, to be the number one cause of cancer metastasis. First study on this was in 1910 on rats. They basically, um, they implanted tumors in the rats and then excised them and that caused the cells to metastasize to different parts of the rat and accelerated termination. Um, and in the rats that they didn't um, perform surgery on, those ones survived, metastasis didn't occur. And then I'm just looking through this now, um, Dr. Warren Cole at the University of Illinois, he also conducted similar studies on humans and he found the exact same thing is true with humans. Uh, German professor of radiology, Dr. Ernst Krakowski, he studied this as well and he had a very important message and that was this, and I quote, Therefore, it should be of great concern to therapists as well as patients that already more than 30 years ago it was conclusively shown that cancer surgery is the main cause of metastasis. However, this research was completely ignored by the profession. It was just too awful to contemplate and patients never got to know about it. So, cancer surgery is the main cause of metastasis. Metastasis is the main cause of cancer death. That's not looking good for this so-called treatment. When you take a sick person and cut them with a knife, it appears to, in all cases, make them worse. My little brother, his experience was, I think it was a quintessential example of what you're describing here. He was 17 years old. He was a super, he was a, a pretty healthy, pretty healthy kid. He played high school football. He was pretty popular, real, real happy, you know, happy-go-lucky kid. And he developed, he, his knee started hurting one day. And at first he thought it was some type of training injury. And then he ended up, they ended up going in and doing the scans and they discovered a bone spur there in his knee and it was all it was all pretty scary for us we're all we were all like geez you know woody's 17 year old kid why why would this this sort of thing is supposed to happen to older people but we uh he was booked in for surgery and they got he had a yeah it was a, a rather small tumor osteosarcoma tumor there in his knee and they got it out and they said, oh, you know, everything's, everything's fine. We caught it early. And then he, 
think it was about six months after that, he developed cancer tumors in his, in his lungs. And he, uh, and, and that was like when we really kind of got very afraid and we were starting to, you know, we were considering the worst. Right. And then they, so they did uh, surgery of the tumors in the lungs, which were, those were larger tumors. And then after that, this, this, this all dragged on for about five years, I believe. After that, he, they discovered a larger tumor that was in his knee. And so what, so the first knee surgery that they did, they, they gave him a, uh, some type of a prosthetic knee. They had to, they had to remove the knee and give him a crappy knee. And he had to quit all his sports, quit all his athletic stuff that he loved doing and walk around with a cane. And, and he also began chemotherapy at that time. He started doing chemotherapy and of course he, he hated it. He lost his hair. I remember the other kids on his football team, they, in a, you know, great sign of solidarity, they all shaved their hair like him. They all shaved their hair bald like him so that he would be supported, which was, which was great. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing how uh, community rallies around people when they have cancer. Um, And, but the, the, I think I think that the chemotherapy probably caused another tumor, and so he ended up with a with a yeah with a much greater tumor in his knee. And the hypothesis of the doctors was that this tumor in his knee had been there all along, and that that was kind of seeding the tumors in the lungs. And so at that point, they had to amputate the the leg so he uh, lost his left leg and after that we we all prayed a ton Uh, he went through i think 12 rounds of chemo total he took a million weird drugs that i couldn't even pronounce the names of he would uh he would hallucinate which uh apparently he actually found that part kind of amusing but he was in he, he was in pretty bad shape for about five years and fortunately he has been in remission now I think about 12 years wow man sorry to hear that but glad he made it um I could put some insight into that that uh might be of interest to you so yeah it's, it's important to know what a tumor is and what a tumor isn't, what a cancer cell is and what a cancer cell isn't as well. In this case, we'll go with tumors because your brother had one in his knee. And you said that began with an injury in his knee. Did you not? No, it, it didn't begin with an injury. He thought it was an injury because he was doing sports. He thought it was an injury. Okay, interesting. So this takes us way back to the 1860s when uh, a, doc, a German physician and many more things, anthropologist, pathologist, prehistorian, biologist, writer, editor, and politician, Dr. Rudolf Virchow. He worked with a lot of cancer patients in his many years as a physician. And the cancer was obviously a lot less prevalent than it was today, but he saw many of them. And one of the things he found was that tumors form at the sites of chronic injuries. He found that this was so common that an injury was a precondition for tumor formation that he actually published Mm -hmm. this hypothesis. Um, In 2008, Swiss researchers acknowledged 
the remarkable similarities between wound repair and cancer as well. So basically over the past 150 years, and I've got about 20 studies referenced here, um, experiments have revealed that there's virtually no difference between a wound and cancer. So a tumor can be thought of as a, an unhealing wound, and that's the core of the issue. Our, this culture and the cancer industry and the governments and the media, which all support the industry over people, um, they seem to promulgate this idea, this philosophy on cancer that cancer is something completely foreign to the body that grows in there, and they claim it's as the result of um, genetic um, sorry, mutations. <laughs> it's not a genetic disease. They do claim it is, though. The, the evidence is pretty clear on that. However, uh, the, what I'm trying to get to here is that cancer is not some kind of monster that grows inside the body that's trying to kill you. And the idea is that you have to kill it before it kills you. That's how you justify the use of knives, ionizing radiation, and poisons as treatments. But in reality, all the markers that doctors look for when diagnosing characteristics of cancer are indistinguishable from a wound. And so I guess I should continue with that a little bit closer. So that was 1860. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Otto Warburg, many people who have researched cancer, at least a little bit, are aware of him. And one of the things he found when looking at individual cells within a tumor was that they, were, they had dysfunctional metabolism, so their mitochondria were damaged. And so Rudolf Virchow's research showed that tumors were a collection of damaged cells. Warburg's research looking at individual cells found that they were metabolically damaged cells. So basically, all across the board, the research on anyone who has been able to fund research on the metabolism of cancer has come to the conclusion that what these are and what tumors are, are damage. So with that in mind, treating damage, like mainstream oncologists are taught to treat damage with treatments that cause damage. That's the sum of their medical intelligence and how insane the industry is. Yeah, it's pretty nonsensical when you put it that way. Of these, okay, of, of, of the mainstream forms of treatment, are there any instances when, when they should be considered, do you think? Uh, in my opinion, I don't think anyone has ever benefited from surgery, chemotherapy, or radiotherapy. I think if someone survives, people have survived these. And those are considered statistically as a cure. However, I think if someone survives, it's because they are incredibly strong, not because the mustard gas chemotherapy that they injected into them had some kind of medicinal effect. I think in all cases, these things do nothing but damage. And, okay, so let's get into the alternative treatments because I've, I've heard, especially, you know, when my brother dealt with this whole episode, I was immediately very interested in alternative treatments because you hear all these fantastic anecdotes about people that use some sort of herbal concoction or people that did something with ozone. You hear about people going to clinics in Mexico or Switzerland and kicking it via other, kicking it via, you know, less invasive, less, uh, what do they call it, iatrogenic, less iatrogenic uh, forms of, of, of therapy. But people are, people are naturally going to be kind of skeptical 
of these sorts of things. What has your research led you to believe are like the the legit alternative options and which which alternative options are probably just kind of things that the internet echo chamber has uh, has made attractive to people? Well, I think the first thing I would say, um, just to cap off, and we could definitely get back into chemotherapy or radiotherapy or um, screening tests for cancer if you want, but I think a good way to cap that off and one of the best ways to prevent death from cancer or being diagnosed with cancer is this. Um, Dr. Hardin B. Jones, U.S. leading statistician for over 30 years, he conducted a multi-decade study, 25-year study on looking at cancer patients who are treated versus the untreated. And he presented his findings at a 1969 seminar for the American Cancer Society. And his conclusions were as follows. Here's a quote for you. My studies have proven conclusively that untreated cancer victims live up to four times longer than treated individuals. If one has cancer and opts to do nothing at all, he will live longer and feel better than if he undergoes radiation, chemotherapy, or surgery. So right there, you have a 400% increased chance of survival just by doing nothing at all. So that for me, that's something <laughs> the first step. Yeah. You'll have a lot more money too. Absolutely. Yeah. Better outlook on life probably as well. So I think that's step one. And then continuing with the line of thinking before that uh, a chemo or a tumor rather is an injury. The opposite of, a wound that won't heal is a wound that will heal scarlessly and perfectly. And when you look at, there's some interesting research in the human embryo, as well as fetuses of mice, rats, pigs, and monkeys. They've all been tested for this. Kind of, um, you know, the moral, the morality or ethics of these studies where they go in and slice a fetus with um, a knife and to see its effects and how that thing will heal is kind of, unethical however a live a live fetus a, a yeah. mouse or a human uh these were done on mice rats pigs and monkeys and humans as well i think okay. humans uh, that seems pretty crazy but i have a what is it 17 studies referenced here so anyone can go in if they uh -huh. get my second book on cancer and read those themselves but amazingly um the reality is that when that these things have a remarkable capacity for healing. The human embryo or the fetus, those are just the same thing in a different stage. Um, basically, when they're wounded, they repair quickly, scarlessly, and with little or no inflammation. And this has been studied and established repeatedly. So it's as close to truth as it gets. And so the question is, what is the difference between an embryo? Why can it heal perfectly and scarlessly? And why does a tumor wound not heal? And so the answer is the tumor microenvironment. And that is one of the most important areas of cancer research. And so if you have a tumor, basically the area surrounding that tumor, you can call that the tumor microenvironment. Some people, some people have called it the cancer field. And so the things um, present in that tumor microenvironment are inflammatory mediators sometimes, um, often signals of stress, stress hormones like cortisol, um, things like nuclear kappa nuclear, sorry, the interleukins, mm -hmm. um, serotonin, estrogen, these types of things. And when there seems to be a, a field that rises and falls together, and when these things are present, 
it basically sig signals the tumor to not be able to heal. But if you change those factors in the tumor microenvironment, so in other words, to treat cancer, you basically target the nitric oxide that's in the tumor microenvironment. You target the vascular endothelial growth factor. You target the cortisol, estrogen, adrenaline, the free radicals. Any of these things are very evidence-based ways to help a tumor resolve itself and let the body heal. Um, another thing, this is kind of the crux of the issue. The core of it is lactic acid is also in the tumor microenvironment. So a lot of people know that the body's acidic and they say cancer can't survive unless there's an acidic environment in the body. Well, that's true, but it's not like cancer is a monster. That kind of plays into that idea that it can't trying to kill the person when it's not. However, they're correct in that lactic acid is elevated. And lactic acid is produced by a damaged cell that's producing energy through the process called glycolysis. It's a very inefficient form of metabolism. A lot of people think uh, there's a book called How to Starve Cancer. Uh, somebody actually just wrote me an email telling me about that book the other day. And that plays into that as well. And it's the idea that you need to not give it sugar because this monster is growing inside of you. Uh, the reality is a tumor is, the metabolism of a tumor is chronic fat metabolism. And in order to heal, it needs to revert back to the metabolism of a healthy cell, which is the full oxidation of glucose within the mitochondria of cells. So anything that will help with that is an evidence-based way to treat cancer. And in my research, can quickly and inexpensively reverse and help resolve a tumor or any kind of cancer in the body. So yeah, your books were full of people who have studied this for decades saying that not that doing nothing counterintuitively counterintuitively doing doing nothing is most effective and so what you're saying is that the yeah especially those mainstream approaches are going to make it worse and that you want to instead focus on things like nutrition that is going to that's going to starve the aberrant cancer cells and going to enhance the immune system so that the immune system can do its job because it's really it's really the immune system which is our first line of defense against cancer and really probably the most effective tool that we have in the tool chest to beat it. Yeah, absolutely. I think people seem to have lost the faith in the human body for its own capacity to regenerate and heal itself. Um, there's something to be said about a good night's rest and increasing the amount of sleep you have because the body, that's the, it's time to regenerate and heal. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely step one is to realize that the body can heal itself. So therefore doing nothing is actually a step forward in my opinion, as opposed to using cut slash and burn methodologies. And tell us about mammograms. Mammography. Yeah, so this is an important one for women. Uh, mammography is a, it's a screening test for breast cancer, and mainly in women, but also a lot of men are getting this as well. So it uses x-rays. So it's an x-ray image of the woman's breast, and using that x-ray, doctors look to see if there's any cancer in the breast. However, most people have no idea what an x-ray is or its potential damaging effects. Um, 
X-rays and gamma rays are what are used in radiotherapy. Uh, they, that is a much higher frequency, uh, a much higher dose of X-rays than you get with a simple X-ray image. However, research is showing that even the small, low-dose ionizing radiation is something to be concerned of. And it's questionable whether people would even want to uh, engage in mammography if they understood how damaging and its potential consequences it can be. So. You, you referenced in your book the, I think it was a Swedish, Swedish study, where they were looking at how it was, a, it was a real, I believe, okay, they did a statistical analysis of a very large group of women, and they did, they looked at 10 years previous, and then they did a 10-year follow-up, and they found that the women who were getting their mammograms on a yearly basis, I believe getting their mammograms as frequently as the mainstream recommends, that they ended up being diagnosed. It, it, it almost seemed to be an inevitability that if you got mammograms very frequently, you'd end up with breast cancer. Yeah, exactly. So the big screening test for women is mammography. The big one for men is prostate screening, which is the PSA test. And so the way that the cancer business makes money is by having a steady flow of customers like any other business. And these screening tests, mammography and the PSA are the ways that they lure in the potential customers. So in other words, if you don't get these screening tests, you can't get diagnosed. Um, but what's important to understand, and when you look at the research, most rational people will conclude that these things are doing far more harm than good, including Dr. Peter Gotcha from the Nordic Cochrane Center um, he concluded after looking, after doing a review on mammography in the early 2000s that the use, the annual routine use of mammograms to diagnose breast cancer is unjustified because as the research has shown, um, in 2012, there was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that concluded one in three women diagnosed with breast cancer have been, by mammography, have been misdiagnosed. So with the PSA and with mammography, there is a massive amount, including millions of people in the last 30 years, 1.3 million women, it has been estimated, have been misdiagnosed with breast cancer in the last 30 years due to mammography. And of course, they end up getting the, the surgery, the chemo and the radiotherapy, the whole works, which costs an unbelievable amount of money. And it, for some, it costs them their lives. For those who, who do survive, they end up with crippling side effects many times for the rest of their life and disfigurement because oftentimes uh, double mastectomy is used as a surgical adjuvant to the chemo and radiotherapy. And that is quite the horror story as well, because many women return to plastic surgeons because they feel so self-conscious after oh, yeah. losing their breasts. And the amazing thing is that, and this isn't amazing, this is horrendous, because after this happens and they get uh, breast implants to try and compensate for the loss of the breast, this actually increases um, their anxiety depression and loss loss of self-esteem so it doesn't fix the problem it's like this conveyor belt of one thing after the other that leads to worse outcomes in the end so if they survive their lives are significantly and permanently altered often and that can't be reversed now uh, my wife doesn't get mammograms she just you know gives herself a feel in the in the shower is that the the smartest thing to do to uh, prevent breast cancer? 
I, I think it's certainly safer than getting a mammogram. Um, even when they first get the mammogram, the breast is clamped down on a, an imaging plate. It sounds uncomfortable. Oh yeah, uncomfortable, painful. It has been described as, and and if there is a tumor, this is what studies have shown that that can actually cause it to metastasize. So just the slap from putting the breast on the imaging plate, even before the image itself, really can cause the tumor to metastasize even before the image or anything like that. So how is that worth it already? Let alone the the low dose of ionizing radiation, which according to Samuel Epstein is 1,000 times the dose of a chest X-ray. So it's actually quite a high dose. A thousand times the dose of a chest X-ray. Indeed, for one mammogram, which is why, like you were mentioning, over there were studies that were showing like over the course of 10 years of a woman getting a mammogram consecutively, the chances of being misdiagnosed is as high as 100%. Yeah, it's a... It's a tremendous business model. <laughs> I can see why this, why the stock stock market prices are are so high for these companies. They've really got it figured out. Absolutely, it's like some venture capitalists, uh, entrepreneurial, pharmaceutical types. You know, wanted to cash in on the baby boomer generation. There's a lot of money to be made there. I don't know if their intent and purpose was, you know, let's let's use a an inefficient. Um, style of diagnostic test that will overdiagnose people because it will make money or it just kind of happens that way. But that's kind of what's happening. That's the situation we're in. And it's no better for the PSA test. We can go over that too, if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about prostate cancer. Okay. Yeah. So no matter how this comes out, I just want to say everything that I'm about to talk about, everything you could ever want to know about the PSA test is in this book. If you breathe, you need to read it at some point. It could easily save your life, if not just for this prostate cancer screening test and mammography section alone. So with that in mind, um, I guess the amazing thing about prostate cancer and breast cancer, and I, I do write this in the book, for prostate cancer, the amount of men that will actually die from the disease, and this has been studied when you compare or after a 10-year follow-up, after being diagnosed, ones who were treated versus untreated, only 2.4% of men will actually die. So that means you have around a 98% chance of surviving a diagnosis of prostate cancer. 2.4%. Yeah. Wow. 2.4% chance of death. So how does that justify ruining your life? Um, because the two main side effects, I guess if you have prostate cancer, what they're going to do is well, they want to either radiate your prostate which is a small gland between the anus and the penis, I guess, right in that chota region for lack of a proper scientific. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so either they surgically remove the prostate or they radiate it. And sometimes they use robotic robots to do the surgery, which they claim is much better than when a human being does it. But the evidence suggests it's not. Um, so whether it's radiotherapy treatment, whether it is surgery by a robot or by a human, the two most common side effects from this are urinary incontinence and impotence. So in other words, many men who have gotten their prostates surgically removed or radiated are having to wear diapers for the rest of their life because they cannot hold their pee. So Jeez. it robs them of their bank account and their dignity and the relationships because they cannot now have, make love to their wives because they are now impotent. And so Dr. Richard Ablin, the, the founder of PSA, he invented the PSA test and it was never intended 
to diagnose cancer. It has nothing to do with cancer. That's the crazy thing about it. Uh, he wrote a book called The Great Prostate Hoax. You might find that at your local library, amazingly. I was happy to find it here. And the most important information as far as a practical standpoint, as far as um, what you need to know in order to decide if you want to get a PSA test is in my book. However, if you want to learn the history and how the industry hijacked his PSA test and started using it inappropriately to diagnose cancer, I recommend that book, The Great Prostate Hoax by Dr. Richard Ablin. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fascinating read, but um, I'm trying to think where I was going to go with that. Yeah, Sorry, okay. So if, so if I go and see my physician for my yearly checkup and the physician asks me, says, you know, hey, uh, why don't you flip over so I can check your prostate? Should I just tell him, nope, not, not worried about it? Uh, what I would suggest is asking him, like, what evidence do you have that this is going to benefit me or what are the potential risks associated with this test? Um, because as a consequence of using the PSA test, like 85% of men diagnosed, up to 85, uh, don't have anything that will ever harm them, ever. They could go to the grave with it and never have any kind of symptoms. And another amazing thing is that most men, like 66% who get the PSA test, they're not even aware that they've had it. So if you get an annual uh, checkup with your doctor, there's a good chance that he's going to do the PSA test without you even knowing it. And so it is a blood test. And so I would recommend asking the doctor if he's going to do the PSA test, if you decide to get an annual checkup and uh, full disclosure on the potential side effects of it. And then, of course, read this book and compare what he says to what the evidence and the scientific literature says. Chances are he doesn't know much more about it than you is my guess. And it's very important to know the potential consequences of this before you get into it, because it can ruin or even end your life in some cases. Yeah, that's, that's really terrible that so many men do such damage to that part of their body, to the, that they do such, such damage to their manhood because of uh, this uh, a fallacious test where they're going to have a, yeah, where they're going to have a, uh, what, would, what, would that, what would that come out to? 97.8 chance of survival. I'll, I'll take those odds every day over, you know, allowing a, a knife or radiation nearby that, that region of my body. Yeah, absolutely. If you will, I would love to describe the, pro the process of a PSA test. It's, it's, kind, it's uh, useful to know how it all works because there's a few steps on this yeah, conveyor yeah. belt towards prostate removal. So during the biopsy, or I guess first you get the blood test and you probably wouldn't even know that's going to happen. So make sure you know before you're going to get involved in this. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying look at the evidence and decide if you want that first. So it begins with a blood test. And then if they suspect, there's this arbitrary number that they look for when they look at your blood. Um, what's it called? Yeah, so there's like a PSA level. If it's four or higher, then you'll get referred to a urologist for a biopsy. And so, however, the biopsy is not accurate either. Uh, Dr. Urologist, Dr. Thomas Stamey has said, you can biopsy according to whether a man has blue eyes or green eyes and get the same results as biopsying according to the PSA. So it itself isn't accurate, but the biopsy process is something that you need to know because it sounds really painful. I would never do it now that I know what it is. And here's what it is. During a prostate biopsy, a urologist 
will stick an 18 gauge needle through Ooh. a man's rectal wall. So they enter through the rectum, through the rectal wall, and then into the prostate glands and punch out core tissue samples. So six to 12 times they're punching this thick six needle to 12 through times. the rectal wall. Absolutely. Whoa. So they're, with it, they're dragging fecal matter, of course. So there's a higher risk of infection in the prostate gland in the process. And every single one of those 12 punches sounds incredibly painful. Um, it can, and yeah, so this biopsy can lead to pain, blood in the urine, rectal bleeding, erectile dysfunction, and life-threatening infections. So the biopsy itself, you can die from. That's how serious it is. And I don't think the doctor or the urologist would even tell you how it, what it involves, that biopsy. It just kind of sounds like an innocent little procedure. But that it is not. Yeah. Um, so w one of the <clears throat> questions from your book that I'd really like people to remember that I really hope that people can, you know, file away in, in their minds for when they're dealing with their doctors is what, whatever the issue is, whether it's cancer or something else, when your doctor proposes an intervention, especially a surgical one, you want to ask them, what evidence do you have that doing this procedure to me is better than not doing it to me? Or you could, I'm imagining you could also ask something kind of like this, say, knowing what you know from experience, would you undergo this cancer treatment or surgery or whatever if you were in my position? Would you want your loved ones, were they in my position, subjected to this treatment? And I imagine that that sort of question is going to kind of cut through a lot of BS because I think that uh, a lot of doctors, while they perhaps are, you know, while they perhaps are, are kind of, are, are, are maybe not operating in full integrity, they would probably have a big problem lying to your face if you posed a question just like that. And they'd probably give you some frank feedback, I would hope. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way to kind of snap them out of the uh, uh, just kind of repetitive cycle of patients coming in and them referring them that they go through every day. I think that's one of the problems with the medical system itself is if you have, you could have the greatest home care or family doctor in the world and he, that he or she could really care about you. However, the process when it comes to the PSA test or not is that they refer you elsewhere to a specialist, so-called. They'll refer you to a urologist after they find an elevated PSA score. So to that urologist, they just see a constant supply of people coming in who they've never met and basically you are a dollar sign to them when you walk in their office. They don't know you. They haven't met you long enough to care. And so it just becomes kind of a routine thing for them to shuttle you through this process towards the removal of your breasts or your prostate or any other kind of horrendous cancer treatment. I was listening to some history podcasts and they were talking about World War One, and they're talking about how World War One was kind of this, this unnecessary war. There was, you know, a little assassination that happened there in Sarajevo, not that far away from where I live in the world. And then it ended up 
escalating into this horrific war that just uh, that ruined the 20th century for so many people. And one of the explanations was they were describing how during World War I, there was a lot of generals making diplomatic decisions. There was, there was heightened diplomatic tension between uh, Austria-Hungary uh, and Russia and France and the UK. And they, they put all these generals in charge of making these diplomatic decisions. And so these generals are soldiers. These generals are in the, the business of fighting a war. And so they came to this, they were like, okay, well, let's, let's win this war. If there's, you know, there's going to be a war. I'm a general. I've got troops. I've got artillery. I've got, you know, uh, millions and millions of young men that I can conscript to go fight. So they were in a, they were in a paradigm of let's go fight a war. And so I, I kind of imagine that this is part of the problem with the cancer industry is that you have these, these oncologists and it, it might not be that all of them are like psychopathic, uh, sadistic uh, capitalists that just see us as an opportunity to make a bit more money, but it might be that they are just in the mindset of, of well, you know, there's a potential diagnosis here. There's a there's a signal. There's a potential signal here. So I'm gonna go and bring all my bring all my firepower to bear. Uh, on this uh, for for this person, I, I imagine that's part of the part of the mindset issue that's going on here. Yeah, I hear you, and I think another factor that makes doctors conform to the norm and not really stand up too much against the prevailing norms um, is the fact that they take they go to school for like ten years of medical school, and that amounts to I think the last time I checked the average debt that a medical doctor incurs in medical school is like $200,000 or something. So 10 years of their life, if they were making $50,000 a year during those 10 years and not going to school would have been about half a million dollars. So that plus the $200,000 debt is a massive commitment of a three quarters of a million dollars almost that they've invested in their education. So they come out of school and I think, I think most doctors and oncologists, anyone who's setting out to do that wants to help people. But the reality is when they start to practice, they, many of them realize that nothing that they're doing, none of the drugs or surgeries, or let's just say most of the drugs or surgeries they have to offer does nothing but harm. And you can see um, the symptom of that is that doctor suicides are up to 4.5 times higher than that of the layperson. So it's like many of them, they come out of school wanting to help people, eager to help really good people inside massive debt to pay on the other hand and then they realize they're not helping people so if they quit they got this massive debt to pay where are they going to work at a grocery store to repay it so either they basically stick with a plan and just kind of shut off the part of their mind that knows many of the treatments they're giving people are killing them and uh, keep doing what they're doing because they're making good money the other option is go back to school and become a naturopath or something switch routes which requires more debt more stress and yeah, they could be they school. could be video bloggers and you know make the big bucks like me and you. Absolutely, <laughs> and there's uh, there's many of them that do that too, uh, like that speak out about this, and I'm very mm -hmm. thankful. I think we all owe them, like Gary Null, for example, 
uh, Dr. Reich Gerd Hamer. He's got an amazing quote on chemotherapy that I would love to share right now. Um, and that was this, to sell chemotherapy as a therapy is most likely the biggest deceit in the history of medicine. Whoever masterminded this chemo torture deserves a monument in hell. So he's part of the club. He's a doctor. And yet he's saying things like this. That is an incredible amount of courage. And I'm sure he paid for that courage and, and his outspokenness, maybe perhaps being threatened, things like this. We know that uh, Dr. Gary Null has spoken about this. He, for a while there, was interviewing people, treating people with alternative cancer treatments. And he said anybody having success with alternative cancer treatments is constantly being threatened. Their clinics shut down, being threatened, phone calls, you name it. So, There was that documentary, I think it was uh, Brzezinski, of the, the doctor. I watched this documentary on Netflix a long time ago. And was that it? Was it Brzezinski? Yeah, that's uh, that, definitely one of them who has been, who's having some success and he had like armed raids on his clinic. Yeah, it was crazy. The, the opposite, he ran into like military grade opposition for just for treating people's cancer. Yeah, absolutely. There's a Dr. Andrew Whitaker who was like looking into everyone who is treating cancer holistically. That was one of the people he looked at. And that just kind of, I think that was the switch for him that woke him up to realize that this whole cancer industry is just a racket that is shutting down clinics left and right uh, just for the sake of profit to maintain their, their status quo. So after I read your book, I was doing a lot of thinking about this because it's just, uh, it's hard to countenance this, this level of evil. And so I will chat with my wife from time to time about these kind of morbid red pill sort of topics, things like, uh, things like vaccination, things like the sick care pharmaceutical industrial complex, uh, things like corporations destroying the environment, the depopulation agenda, the military industrial complex. And a lot of times my wife is is astounded that people could be evil enough to perpetuate such vast suffering on their on their fellow human beings and that that's kind of what a lot of people wonder is like day to day most of the people that we know most of the people that we deal with are are like decent decent people and and so it, it makes you wonder if there are like vast numbers of doctors scientists corporate executives and politicians that are just these uh, sadists that get off on human suffering, or maybe is it that the libertarians are right and that all of the evil in the world is just because of bad systemic incentives? What's, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I kind of jump back and forth from that too. The surface level of the cancer conspiracy is certainly that it is about making money. But the more you research, the more you see a type of evil that you could probably not fathom if you haven't seen it. And I think on a spiritual level, like there is so much more to this existence than that which we can see, feel, hear, touch, taste. Yeah, totally. Five sense reality here. And I think on a spiritual purpose, the evil that's in this world that you can see it when you pretty much investigate any event or any industry in depth, like the cancer industry, is there to kind of wake us up and make us better people. 
So I think on some level, yeah, they're trying to make money and that kind of perpetuates itself. Hospitals have massive amounts of money invested in radiotherapy equipment, which costs millions, by the way. So if they don't pay their monthly bills for these radiotherapy equipment, then they go out of business. So that's one force. It's the money for sure. But I think I do agree with you on some level. I think there is a small group of people in this world who absolutely love the fact that they have brainwashed people into basically paying money to kill themselves using these treatments that cause death, surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy. When you, you hear doctors talking about what it takes to become a doctor, and so they have to spend the requisite seven years in, in school uh, going, I had a, my best friend for a couple of years was a guy that was uh, entering dentistry. And I remember he, it, it was an incredible amount of work that he had to do in college. And then once they graduate college, then they have to do their, their residency in a hospital. And what I hear over and over again is I hear that this, this residency is like a year or two or more of just total torture, that they get ridiculously overworked and that they, they don't get paid that much money and they have to work uh, insane hours. And so I think that some of this some of this this lack of empathy and concern that we see so consistently in the in the healthcare medical system we we you know guys like me and you call it the the sick care the sick care business i think what we're seeing here is kind of the the trauma re-traumatization cycle where people are traumatized and so then they perpetuate a system which is going to traumatize the fresh blood that's coming into the system. And that beats down some of the empathy that these young doctors might have, where they just want to help people be healthier. They just want to save lives. And then there's this and then there's the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they have in debt. And it ends up that that ends up being enough that they can make uh, that because you can imagine you can imagine someone like a like an oncologist or a uh, or for example like a prostate a prostate uh, so, someone who is an expert on prostate surgery for example you can they must know what what you know they must have read some of the same books and studies that you've read and they must know they must know somewhere that it's pretty fallacious what they're selling the people that come into their offices yeah actually that brings up an interesting quote so dr ralph moss wrote a book many decades ago called the cancer industry as well and here's a quote from it i had a brain cancer specialist sit in my living room and tell me that he would never take radiation if he had a brain tumor. And I asked him, but do you send people for radiation? And he said, of course, I'd be drummed out of the hospital if I didn't. So very interesting that he perpetuates it. Uh, it doesn't say why, what's going on in that guy's head there. But uh, there's an interesting uh, line of research that I talk about in a chapter in the cancer industry called The Battle for Truth. And that was the psychology of the rich. So I guess 
So scientists have been analyzing this bewildering psychology of this idea that you're able to just look the other way and basically send people to their graves for profit. This psychology has been studied for a number of decades. And basically what they found was that higher social class, like that of an oncologist or doctor, predicts increased unethical behavior. So a 2000 review on this subject noted that upper class individuals were more likely to break the law, steal, lie, or endorse unethical behavior and cheat to increase their chances of winning a prize. So the cancer industry with a $126 billion annual prize, that's their amount of revenue that that industry makes, it's not hard to see that they might or understand the motivations, I guess, behind that dreadful conduct. Mm. So it's the social class that somehow has this psychological effect where it, I don't know, it, somehow they can look beyond the death that they're causing and be okay with it. Yeah, that's hard for me to believe because I've, I've known some rich people and they were, geez, maybe with the except, I think I can think of one rich person that I've known that was, uh, he was totally demented. But of, of, of the rich people I've known in my life, they were all really decent people. So it's, it's, hard, to, it's, it's, it's hard to believe that there's a, that there's a totally different ethical ethical standard that 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 they might have but what i would totally what i would totally believe is that there's a that there's a a one percent of the one percent that there's a that there's a super elite that is in charge of things like the like the medical system in charge of uh in charge of things like like vaccination policy worldwide and if you look at what those kind of people say, if you go and look at some of the things that uh, Bill Gates has said, for example, or go and look at things that the uh, members of the British royal family have said, these people seem to kind of agree with Agent Smith in The Matrix. They seem to believe that that humans are like a virus on this planet, that there's way too many of us and it also seems that in this this super elite uh in the super elite cast of society that a lot of these people are like transhumanists and that they are really committed and enthusiastic about bringing about a world where they are not going to need billions and billions of peasants buying their products and working in their working in their factories. So I I would be, I, I have a hard time believing that your your average doctor who makes I don't know $100,000 a year, I have a hard time believing that he doesn't have a conscious, but I can understand how through a bureaucracy which is organized irresponsibility and how when you have something like the medical system, when you have these, these vast, unconscionable sums of money that are, that are driving people to make decisions, I can understand how the evil perpetuates down throughout the whole system and ends up touching so many people. And, you know, as they, they predict that it'll, that it'll be half, <laughs> half, half of all people will get cancer. That's, that's pretty fantastic. Fantastically horrific. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because nobody actually dies of cancer. It's the conditions in the body that lead a doctor to diagnosing cancer that actually kill them. There is no monster in there. 
as we went over. And I think one thing that's important to state, just in case people are still skeptical, uh, a lot of people wonder, you know, is the cancer industry holding out on us? Have they been for a long time? Have they and would they suppress better treatments or cures if they had found them? And interestingly, there was an official U.S. government investigation into the cancer industry in the early 1950s. Uh, it was launched by the prominent U.S. Senator Charles Tobey. Uh, he launched an official investigation into the cancer establishment. So for the position, Tobey appointed investigator Benedict Fitzgerald of the U.S. Interstate Commerce Commission. And the findings of his investigation, he titled the Fitzgerald Report, these were presented to the U.S. Senate in 1953. Interestingly, though, the Senate took no action, and the inquest was never actually made public until there was a Dr. Stan Monteith um, through the Freedom of Information Act. He liberated this report over 50 years later. And here are some of the conclusions that uh, Benedict Fitzgerald made in, in the Fitzgerald report. My investigation to date should convince this committee that a conspiracy does exist to stop the free flow and use of drugs in interstate commerce which allegedly has solid therapeutic value. Public and private funds have been thrown around like confetti at a country fair to close up and destroy clinics, hospitals, and scientific research laboratories, which do not conform to the viewpoint of medical associations. There is reason to believe that the American Medical Association has been hasty, capricious, arbitrary, and outright dishonest in an interstate conspiracy of alarming proportions. Behind and over all this is the weirdest conglomeration of corrupt motives, intrigue, selfishness, jealousy, and obstruction and conspiracy that I have ever seen. That was in 1950. Here we are, 2020, almost 70 years later, going full steam ahead with mainstream cancer treatments, which we know are doing far more harm than good. So I imagine, Mark... Having wrote these books, you probably receive emails with some frequency of people saying, oh my God, I just got diagnosed with cancer and I really don't know what to do. I really don't want to do the hack slash and burn treatment, but I'm, I'm scared. What, what do you recommend that I do? I do get lots of those emails and they turn out to be very rewarding oftentimes. First thing I tell them is that I'm not a medical doctor. I don't give medical advice because I would go to jail for that. You have to be a doctor to give medical advice. So I always recommend to ask their physician, but I do inform them and arm them with information so they can help. So that can help make them, that will help make them make an, inform, an informed decision about what they want to do and the, the chosen mm -hmm. course that they want to take. Um, as soon as somebody messages me and says they have cancer, I automatically send them a free copy of my book, The Cancer Industry, uh, because it's that important. I want to make sure that they're informed so they don't make a mistake that they can't reverse. Um, so that is step one. And since I also have a book on red light therapy, oftentimes they've already read that and they see the potential. So sometimes they get a red light and test that out. In fact, I've had a couple from Australia recently that messaged me and the wife had breast cancer. Um, the husband, he used to skateboard quite a bit. He said he broke his wrist countless times. Um, and it's always hurt him. He's been unable to play guitar because of it. And he's also off work because of a collarbone injury. He broke it on the job. So he applied it to his wrist and within a week or so he was jamming for two hours with his best friend on guitar and his friend was shocked. 
He applied it to his collarbone. The pain went away, and it healed up within a few weeks as well. And the doctor was shocked when he had to tell or write a note saying he's good to go back to work and done with this workman's comp. The doctor was shocked that he healed up so quickly. His wife had been applying it to her breasts, and within a matter of weeks, now she has said that she feels she is cancer-free. They have a, an appointment with the doctor next Thursday, so that follow-up will determine what's going to happen next, or they will determine what's going to happen next based on that follow-up. But I'm interested to hear what happens there and to see if the doctor is once again shocked. And uh, I, at that point, I'm going to ask him if I can publish that as a case study. And if so, I'll make a video on it as well. So anyone interested in that, subscribe to our newsletter at End All Disease, and you will be first to know when that has been published. Yeah, your website is endalldisease.com. Are you aware of of credible, credi credible case? Hopefully it works out well for that lady. Uh, I, I, I hope it does. I, I anticipate it, it would. Uh, are you aware of credible case studies and or clinical evidence that red light therapy could be a cancer cure? Well, interestingly, there is quite a bit of research on it, um, but mainly on terminal cancer patients. So cancer patients that they've tried surgery, chemo, radiotherapy. So not people that haven't got those. That would be the interesting type of study. But I'm sure the industry is doing whatever they can to avoid funding those types of studies. Yeah. Um, but what we do know about terminal cancer patients is that red light therapy has been shown repeatedly that it can improve their quality of life. So it reduces the symptoms that they receive. Um, it has also, there is some evidence that red light can cause a tumor to grow. I suspect this is the kind of study that has been funded by the industry. Uh, it makes an average of 150,000 per cancer patient and a red light therapy device can be as little as like a hundred bucks. They don't want these treatments coming out. So I'm not surprised if these things were fraudulent to try to scare people away from red light. But the reality is red light is very well established to speed up and accelerate the healing process of things like wounds which is what a tumor and a cancer cell is. So it might be the most efficient way to reverse cancer. So I wouldn't be surprised going forward if I see a lot more people reach out to me, if not, if, if not officially publicized studies on it, uh, we'll have at least some empirical and anecdotal evidence, I'm sure, coming out not only through my website and people reaching out for me, but people who are so thrilled that they've saved their own lives with red light therapy that they make their own YouTube videos and things like that. I'm sure we'll see lots of that going forward. So, so as it stands, red light is probably best as a cancer preventative. That'd probably be, that'd probably be the best way to describe it, right? Yeah, I would say so. Um, if I had cancer, I would definitely use it and probably an hour a day, uh, one or two times. And, uh, from my experience with it, yeah, I think it would probably heal things out pretty quickly. And okay, so uh, someone someone has cancer and they want to they want to treat it in a non iatrogenic fashion. So they'd probably they'd be real interested in cutting their sugar probably totally. Well, I think a better way to approach it is 
So think of it this way. We are just a collection of cells. Some say 70 trillion. I have no idea how anyone came to that number, but uh, let's just go with that. We are a collection of cells either way, no matter how many there are. And so there's only one disease, um, and that is a malfunctioning cell. Either your cells are functioning properly or they're not. So when someone has cancer, they have malfunctioning cells, a dysfunctional metabolism, and the way to heal it is to repair that dysfunctional metabolism by helping the body repair or replace the damaged tissue. Um, red light is very good for that. One of the things we find in cancer patients that I've mentioned is increased amount of lactic acid. When a cell is damaged, its byproduct or one of its byproducts will be lactate. So that acidity will build up in the body. When a person is healthy, the higher a person's metabolism, the more carbon dioxide they will have in the body. These are the two opposing forces in the body. And if you add carbon dioxide to somebody with high levels of lactic acid, the CO2 will go up and the lactic acid will go down. And that defines a healthy person. So the most efficient way to reverse any chronic and degenerative disease in my research is to supplement with CO2 in a matter. And there's many different ways you can do this. This is where sodium bicarbonate comes into play. Um, a lot of people have seen uh, research out there showing that sodium bicarbonate might be a treatment for cancer. People involved with the cancer industry have slandered it. There was actually a special section on the National Cancer Institute's website calling sodium bicarbonate a quack treatment. That's probably, that's not because it's an unscientific treatment, not validated scientifically. It's because it costs 99 cents for a pound and that could probably treat two or three people. Um, the, I actually have a full chapter in my second book, Cancer, the Metabolic Disease on Sodium Bicarbonate. And one of the things that's surprisingly well established is that it can prevent cancer metastasis. So cancer metastasis is the main cause of death. Bicarbonate, just added to water and drank, has been shown to reduce the lactic acid in the body and prevent cancer metastasis. And how does it do that? Well, as soon as the bicarbonate reaches your stomach, which is a vat of acid, that bicarbonate is converted into carbon dioxide. So once here we are again with the lactic acid versus carbon dioxide in the body. A sick person has high lactic acid, low CO2, and to reverse that, you need to elevate the CO2 and reduce the lactic acid. Consuming sodium bicarbonate or bathing in sodium bicarbonate baths, even inhaling CO2-enriched air called carbogen, these are all ways that this can be done. There was a study in Japan where they injected CO2 directly into tumors and the tumors resolved themselves. And, okay, let's talk a little bit about supplements because Limitless Mindset is a biohacker channel and my audience is totally interested in what kind of cool supplements and things they can, they can take that'll make themselves healthier or prevent cancer. I've heard some exciting things about C60 fullerenes. Have you looked into this? I've never heard of those. Where do you find okay. those? Okay, so C60 fullerenes, they're carbon. It's a, it's a carbon buckminster fullerene. So it's this symmetrical soccer ball shaped, soccer ball shaped array of 60 carbon atoms that functions as a super antioxidant. And 
there was, this is something, this is a product that's been really hot in the anti-aging scene because there was a study that was done in Paris. It was an animal study and it basically doubled the lifespan of the animals and apparently that's the that's the best effect it's a it's a landmark anti-aging study because there's almost at, at this point there's almost no other anti-aging interventions that can touch that and it also and it, it prevented the rats that received this C60 from developing cancer tumors, which apparently rats all, almost always die of cancer. Apparently that's what they, that's what they, well, that's predictably how the furry little guys meet their demise. And so there was a, okay, I'm looking at my article on C60, the C60, there was a Serbian paper that discussed its anti-cancer potential because of it as a reactive oxygen species modulator. There was a European study that proved C60's ability to induce apoptosis of leukemic cells in combination with LED-mediated photodynamic cancer therapy. There was a Chinese study that demonstrated that it mitigated the toxicity of chemotherapy. And then there was a, then there was a, apparently a German-Ukrainian study that was on it. And I recall a, a bulletproof interview where they were talking about animals, they were talking about dog studies with dogs with cancer. And it was, it was serving really effective, it was, it was, quite effective. So I, C60 is this, it's actually one of my favorite biohacking products because you consume it as an olive oil. What they do is they have a special process for mixing the C60 molecules in really pure premium olive oil, which boosts the bioavailability of them a bunch. And that was something that I had, that was something that I was, that, that I, although I use it quite frequently because just as a general kind of health performance thing, but it has some, so I think some promising evidence in the cancer department. That's interesting. Interesting that they called it Buckminster Fullerene as well. He's the inventor of the geodesic dome, which sounds like, by the way, you described the chemical molecule, the same shape, um, except microscopic. Uh, thanks yeah. for sharing that. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, I'm sure you could get this in cancer. You probably do a lot of biohacking. You probably got a bunch of supplements that you take. Yeah, I've tried, must be over 100 over the past 10 years. Uh, pretty much tried everything. You know, there's lots of books that talk about one thing, uh, magnesium, for example, which is a big one. But yeah, many other different chemicals that you can try. And I've, I've been around the block with those for sure. Okay, I have something to show you that you might disapprove of. Let's see. You can't tell what this is. This is nicotine. And nicotine. Yeah, I I don't I don't smoke, but I like to consume a I like to consume a little bit of nicotine just as a just as a smart drug, just to give me a little boost in energy and I uh, of of course, people hear nicotine and they, you know, it has 
real negative connotations. And I tried to look into the studies on the carcinogenicity of nicotine. And what I, what I found, this is what my research led me to believe, and you can tell me what you think, because actually a, a lot of biohackers use nicotine. I was, uh, actually, I was talking to a, a guy just last week that, uh, that runs an anti-aging company in the USA, and he was, uh, he was vaping. He was vaping while we were doing our conversation. My, my understanding of nicotine is that nicotine is slightly carcinogenic, that it has, that it has uh, weak carcinogenic properties, and that the reason that so many people who smoke cigarettes die of cancer is because they are incinerating and inhaling hundreds and hundreds of, of unnatural chemicals that are in those cigarettes. And so that led me to that led me to the conclusion that it's probably pretty okay for me to use a bit of nicotine if I'm not incinerating it to where it's going to be, you know, spitting off a bunch of free radicals in my system, uh, causing cancer. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious if there's, if you're aware of evidence that nicotine itself is a, is a major risk factor in cancer. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, without a doubt, probably the most toxic thing about a cigarette, a modern day cigarette, because they can be made with using organic tobacco. However, I think all the modern brands use radioactive fertilizer. So that can't be good. And then, of course, the products of combustion as well, I think, are toxic as well. So what is the what are the effects of just the active ingredient, the nicotine? And I'm just looking right now real quick because I never actually looked into this, but I think I've heard a couple of people talk about it as potentially a good thing. So I think you're onto something there. Um, yeah. In, in Dave Asprey's book, Headstrong, he talks about it. It has a effect on mitochondria. It does a couple, it does a couple of positive things. It is a, it is a nootropic. And if you, if you, if you try nicotine, you might, you might want to try it. You might not because you're probably pretty conservative with what you do with your health, but it really does stimulate quite a bit of cognition, attention, creativity. You know, all of the great novelists, Anne Rind, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Mark Twain, all, all of these people were voracious smokers because it's a pretty great creativity drug. So I will use it in cycles. I'll typically use it for like a week and then I will run out of, I'll run out of the solution and then I'll give myself a week off of it so that I don't develop too much of a dependency and a tolerance. And I would be totally, if someone could show me evidence that the nicotine itself is, is, is a serious carcinogenic risk, then I would totally throw it away and never touch it again. But I feel like as a biohacker, I have so many different things that I do that I think are going to make me resilient and resistant to cancer. I, I take like probably five or six different herbs every single day with my wife. Uh, every day I make a, an awesome herbal tea for us that has... Uh, things like chaga, reishi, ashwagandha, 
Eleuthero, Cassandra, Rhodiola. I make us this amazing immune tea every single day. And so I think that, and actually I know a lot of people in my audience take nicotine. So this is why I'm, this is why I'm talking about it. I think that if you're doing a lot of things to really empower your immune system, you could probably get away with a little bit of consumption of something that's mildly carcinogenic. Yeah, I agree. And I'm looking at a study right now, and what it's showing is that nicotine reduces cortisol production. In my research, anything that reduces stress, which is what cortisol is, a hormone of stress, is going to enhance um, your metabolism, enhance basically every, the function of every cell and system in your body. And I think caffeine is similar. Nobody knows exactly how, but it seems to boost, boost metabolism as well. So that's another way, I suppose, that you could enhance metabolism. But yeah, I'm interested in nicotine as well. How has it been in your experience overall? Completely positive or? Pretty positive. The major downside to it is that it tastes pretty awful. I consume it. I, I have like a, this little solution is I think five or 7% nicotine in the, in a PG, VG, propenylglycol solution. And yeah, it tastes like a punch in the throat. And Ooh. it can, it can, I, I find it can be a little upsetting of the stomach because nicotine, nicotine is a poison. So it's typically a good idea to maybe have something in your stomach. I, I actually find that if I, if, if I, you know, consume the, the classic cocktail of a, a coffee and a bit of nicotine, I find that coffee somehow counterbalances a little bit of that stomach upset. But otherwise, it's all upside with nicotine. It's totally energizing. It gives me a little bit more verbal horsepower. It gives me a bit more creativity. I even find that if I do nicotine just prior to meditation, I find that my, they call it the default, default mode network, I think of the mind, which is kind of like that, that deep subconscious capacity of the mind to figure out our problems, the, this, you know, the capacity of the mind to draw upon millions and millions of of items of episodic and semantic memory that are there in the back of our minds. And when you, when you do meditation and you get all of your day-to-day -day worries out of your, out, out of your, you know, realm of concerns, you allow for that, uh, unco that powerful unconscious mind to start sending you messages and start giving you solutions to things. And I find that's enhanced a bit more when I'm on, nicotine. So I'm a pretty big fan of the stuff. And I think I'll probably continue to use it in the future until I uncover a good reason not to. At this point, unfortunately, my internet connection with Mark got disconnected. So if this podcast has left you with some questions, I would suggest, first of all, that you pick up Mark's book. My favorite one was The Cancer Industry, and it really breaks down the evidence. It's not that long of a book. You could probably read it in a day or two, and I don't suggest that people read every single book that I read. In fact, there's a lot of books that I read that I 
recommend people don't read that I say, you know, hey, here's the summary of this. But this book is something I think everyone should read because cancer threatens all of our lives and inevitably you're going to have a friend, family member, loved one who has a cancer diagnosis and you're going to go to them and you're going to urge them to maybe not take their doctor's advice, maybe not, you know, subject themselves to the hack slash burn treatment, and you're really going to need some evidence to present to them. And that's what you can find in these books. And beyond that, if you have questions for Mark, I'd suggest that you contact him at endalldisease.com. He has a great newsletter. I don't really think he's a social media guy. So if you want to talk to him, he is very responsive, but you'll have to get on his newsletter there. And I will just leave you with a final comment from him. If there's one way for me to close this show out, and I would have this to say. The monstrous $126 billion cancer industry, hell-bent on preserving its profits at any cost, continues its murderous rampage to this day. The mind of the beast wells up with, with excitement at the thought of 50% of all human beings alive being one day diagnosed with cancer. Only an informed population of people willing to stand up for themselves and make their health decisions for themselves can put an end to the cancer industry's reign of terror. With this raging bull charging directly at humanity, the question remains, are we going to continue letting the cancer industry annihilate us and everyone we love until there's no one left? Or stand up for ourselves and watch this beast plummet into the eternal, fiery depths of hell? <laughs>